It's no secret that Jews love to study. Our ancestors were even caught studying in pre-Sinaitic ancient Egypt during centuries of slavery. Occasionally, however, it is the Jews themselves who become the subject of a study. From November 2019 to June 2020, the reputable Pew Research Center conducted its latest survey on American Jewry in all of its glorious diversity. The survey discovered that the United States is home to approximately 7.5 million Jews, 1.8 million of whom are children, and 73% of whom identify with Judaism. It includes fascinating data on affiliations, cultural and social trends, intermarriage, perspectives, and the like, while comparing the results to an earlier 2013 survey to reveal the rise or wane of individual trends. The data is invaluable, but how can it inform our efforts to expand Jewish identification and involvement with Judaism? Jewish diversity deserves a diverse response to that question, and it is therefore our pleasure to welcome Rabbi Chaim Brook, Director of Chabad of Montana, Mrs. Holly Cohen, CEO of Tamim Academy, Mrs. Pamela Dubin, founder of Great Stewardship, Rabbi Dr. Michael Berger, professor of religion at Emory University, and moderated by Rabbi Moshe Brisky, director of Chabad of Kaneo, each of whom will present their unique view of the pew and their suggested takeaway and lessons. I remember, I think it was 10th grade in high school, they gave us uh, literature, the next book to read, and they gave us Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. In the opening line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, as if the author can't figure it out, it's not our problem. But when you looked at the Pew study, which we're here to discuss, it reminded me of that opening line, the best of times, the worst of times, it depends what you're looking for, because you found some very positive aspects in there and you also found some rather negative. And so we're here to really digest and, and, and look into and dissect some of the aspects of it. Of course, the short time that we have will only whet your appetite to look into it more. But I, I think it's important to point out that the, the, the focus of this group is not just to hear our take on it, but really to motivate all of us and inspire all of us to action, to do something about it. So if we're going to hear about statistics and numbers that alarm you, don't sit back and allow a Jewish establishment to take care of it. Every one of us have to be on the front line of changing these statistics and bringing more and more Jews in. I'm reminded of, of the story of this elderly woman that came to Crown Heights on a Sunday to get a dollar and a blessing from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And those of you that had that experience know that the lines were rather long. People would come from all over the world for this experience, for this moment, and for the, the opportunity to meet uh, a, a tzaddik, a holy individual, and to request a blessing for yourself or your family. And this elderly woman waited on the line, and she got to her turn. And by the time she got to the Rebbe, you would imagine after a few hours, she was tired, she was exhausted. And she says to the Rebbe, Rebbe you, my dear Rebbe, I've been waiting now for a few hours to see you, and I'm very tired. You, Rebbe, have been standing here for hours before I even got online, and you have hours more to go. 
How do you do it? How do you stand all day on your feet? Person after person after person after person for hours, an entire day, nonstop. And the Rebbe said to her, have you ever seen a diamond dealer get tired of looking at their diamonds? They may tire for other things, but counting their diamonds and looking at their diamonds is not one of the things they ever tire from. Why? Because each and every single one of them is a gem, is precious. Said the Rebbe to this woman, every single person I'm seeing is a diamond. You don't get tired when you're counting your diamonds. And I think this is very important for all of us as we get into this discussion of, of the Pew study is that 99% is not good enough for us because that means that some diamonds are left out. Every single Jew has intrinsic value and every single Jew is critical for the rest of us. And so let us keep this in mind as we go through our, our study, as we go through literally taking on a new year as well, that we focus some of our time on outreach and bringing others in because it's not gonna be the rabbis and the rebbitsons it's going to be the people out there on the street that are most effective in bringing their fellow Jews in. I'd like to introduce our, our panel today. We have put together a wonderful panel for you. We have Rabbi Dr. Michael Berger, who's a professor of religion at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. His research and teaching focuses on issues of religious authority, rabbinic literature, and the development of Jewish law and Judaism. He has uh, written on medieval and modern Jewish thought, on Jewish marriage, and on violence in Judaism. As a program officer at the Avi Chai Foundation, he focuses on teacher training and novice teacher support, as well as day school leadership programs. Welcome, Rabbi Dr. Michael Berger. We have Holly Cohn, who's the president and CEO of Tamim Academy. That's a national school network, a movement dedicated to transforming Jewish elementary education in North America. A thought leader in the field of Jewish education, Holly has delivered talks and made presentations at various conferences. She believes it's possible to revolutionize the way Jewish children learn by building high quality and authentically Jewish schools in partnership with Chabad houses across the country. She and her husband reside in Marion Station, Pennsylvania, where they love spending time with their children and their grandchildren. We have Rabbi Chaim Brook, who is the co-CEO, along with his wife Javi, of Chabad Lubavitch of Montana, which they founded together in 2007. Chaim and Javi have busy lives with their five adopted children. They have opened three Chabad centers in Big Sky Country. Chaim loves sushi and the great outdoors and has a healthy balance of sensitivity and bluntness, which is a breath of fresh air in an era of political correctness and never-ending sugarcoating. And we have Pamela Dubin, born and raised in Skokie, Illinois. She's an American Israeli who received her graduate degree from Hebrew University in Jerusalem. In Israel, Pamela worked with the Office of the Mayor of Jerusalem and the Israel Ministry of Immigration and Absorption during the largest immigration in Israel's history from the FSU and from Ethiopia. She worked with numerous tech companies in Israel's startup nation, was a special senior advisor in the Prime Minister's office. Pamela's work with the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Foundation, with IBM and Smart Camp, and with global pro-Israel and Jewish organizations 
led her to become the founder of The Great Stewardship, where she helps future-focused leaders in cyber and artificial intelligence and philanthropy, Israeliness and wellness. Welcome to our panel. Our, our session will be more of a discussion, so some questions I'll direct to one or two of you, but anyone can, can go ahead and, and respond to it as well. And the first question I'd like to ask would be for each and every single one of you to take, take a moment to, to answer, and that was, what was your general reaction when the Pew study came out in May? And did you feel that it was a proper representation of the Jewish America that you encounter? Okay, I would say I agree. Um, unsurprising, and um, you know, it just it is what it is. And then there's the rest of the world. Um, I I don't think that. I, I actually I think it is surprising when you're a Chabad rabbi in the trenches dealing with Jews every day. I think they got it totally wrong, but I guess that's going to come later in the conversation. I think they have their numbers totally skewed. And I think that could be included with the, un, with the unsurprising. <laughs> yeah. That could also mean unsurprising that, you know, you, you thought this is all correct. Oh, no. No, I mean, just, like, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, I, I'm not that moved by the Pew study. Yeah, I agree with the, uh, with the responses here. There's nothing surprising. And it's super important to know where data comes from and what it's for and its purpose. And if it was meant to depress you, I hope you certainly paid no attention. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for that round. All right, so let's start with this. And again, we're going to use the numbers given to us by the Pew study. Whether they're accurate or not is, is for a different discussion. Um, obviously, no poll is, is exactly uh, accurate. But it tells us that about a quarter of the United States Jewish adults, the number they use is 27%, do not identify with the Jewish religion. And they consider themselves to be Jewish ethnically, culturally, or by family background. And they have a Jewish parent or they were raised Jewish, but they answer a question about their current religion by describing themselves as either atheist, agnostic, or they check off nothing in particular rather than checking off the box that says Jewish. Is Jewish ethnicity enough, or do we need people to identify with Judaism in some type of a religious capacity? And also, we'll send this question to the, all four panelists. Okay, I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just start. Okay, so I just, I, I think, um, when, I, when I read that question, and when I read the lead up to the question, I think that one of the most important things to think about is, you know, what is the lens through which the Pew study is, con is considering? What do they mean by religious, okay? And then I think that living in America, especially, um, you know, right now, we're sort of at the, America is the, is the home and the birthplace of the, um, I think, like mostly the reform movement and the conservative movement in Judaism. And nothing wrong with them, but so much of their emphasis on what it meant to be a religious Jew had to do with going to synagogue, mm -hmm. okay? It was like all about, did you go to synagogue? And 
until up until that time, Judaism was really a religion of the home. It's really something that we that we do in our homes. It's the way we conduct our businesses. It's the way we interact with other human beings. So I think that just the premise of the question is problematic in that if you if the question was, you know, if you consider being religious to going to synagogue or keeping kosher, how many of you people do that? But if you asked a much deeper question that's more consistent with what Judaism has always been, except for a couple hundred years here in this country, I think the answers would, um, you know, been a bit different. Mm -hmm. And I think to add to that, if you live in a place like Montana, and the average Jew in Montana is not living in its three or four large cities, they're living in very rural parts of the state, just like Georgia has um, many people living in rural areas, if they got a call from Pew, which by the way, I'm not sure Pew called anyone in Montana, um, because I think the numbers of Chabad Association would go up by leaps and bounds. But um, if you called someone they, and you asked them, are you religious, which translating from what you said means synagogue attendance or, or you know, going to shul three times a day, of course the answer is, I'm not religious. You know how many people sit in my shul on Shabbos and tell me they're not religious? So how does Pew deal with someone that's sitting in shul every week at Minyan telling you they're not religious? So I, that's why I think that the, the way you ask... The, how many of you go to shul and say you're not religious and you're sitting in shul? <laughs> so, so how you ask the question is very, and, and I don't think it's even possible to really get an answer from Jews, a straight answer on a good day, especially with something like that. I, I would just add, I mean, really to, to build on what my colleague said, I think it's not how it's phrased, but it's how it's understood. And when you say, are you religious, right away somebody thinks of commitment. Basically, anybody younger than 40 is scared of the word commitment um, in many areas, you know, and, and the idea of if this is going to pigeonhole me or this is going to label me such that then I have to leave. Um, when I was involved uh, with the Avichai Foundation, the community day school movement really grew in leaps and bounds. And when we asked people, we interviewed families, why they chose that, the community, when they themselves were conservative and there was a shechter in the city or they were orthodox, they said, well, we don't want to pigeonhole ourselves that you're a good ex if you're there, and if you're not, then you have to leave. In a community day school, if, if in third grade I want to be conservative, but then in sixth grade I want to be orthodox, like I, I could just stay in the same school. So the fluidity of American religion, we, we call it religious switching, which is just the data from Pew, was that Americans under the age of 40, okay, almost half have changed their religion once in their lives. Wow. Okay? And, and there are numbers there for two and three times of changing. So when you say, are you religious, that's it. you're telling me to make a commitment? Right? So I think that, that there's that dimension of it as well. So I'm going to look at this from another perspective of the conversation around the word, the dreaded word identity, which is an ideological word that we're seeing play out around our country and around the world. And as Jews, we, of course, are so complex that we cannot be beaten down in this, in this way. And so while that word and, that, and the idea of it can be separated out or removed from, which is really a methodology in our times, we are all here and I speak for all, let's just speak for all Israel, because we're all here together, and the capacity to understand that you can't actually pigeonhole us that way. And so 
with all the good feelings I have for the Jewish People's Planning Institute and data and every data researcher and every data scientist and the algorithm people and everybody else. You're nowhere near the sophistication that we have and that we operate with and how I can find somebody from Highland Park and know who they are. They know who I am. I told a story that I took my husband with an astronomer at Mitzpah Ramon last October or a year ago, October before COVID, and there were eight of us at 1 a.m. in Mitzpah Ramon, and of the eight people, we all knew each other or we knew somebody who knew each other. Mm. So if you want to talk about what identity means from the neoliberal, modern interpretation that Pew's using for the media for today with both researchers being a product of the Washington Post and mm. AP and Becca Elfer uh, did her PhD programming and youth activism project at the University of Arizona. So these people see through their lens hmm. and we welcome them to see through more and a bigger lens and a successful lens. Thank I you. Just, I, can I just add one little sure, tiny please. thing about the, the, like, are you religious? Are right. you, and I think they also ask them, do you identify as a conservative Jew or right. reformed Jew? And just, I'm sure you've all seen this meme somewhere before, but the Lubavitcher Rebbe said, labels are for clothing. Yeah. Yep. You know, you're just, we're all just Jews. Yep. Which leads right into the next question about their giving the options to check off reform, conservative, orthodox and only 32% selected one of those categories. Well, that leaves a nice number of Jews that don't identify, and I think the answer that you just gave is exactly the answer the Rebbe would tell us, and that is, who's asking you to label a Jew? Right. We don't label Jews, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Um, I also think that that point is, is vital, because in our shul in Montana, and we do, believe it or not, we have a pretty active shul for a place like Montana, most of the people attending don't label themselves right. in any way. Right. If you'd ask them, the, right. ch the chance of them saying anything would be Chabad. And that's only because recently they started attending Chabad. They don't even know the difference, most of them. But if you ask the average Jew in America, the difference between reform and conservative, they don't know. I get questions every day about what's... So what, is Chabad Orthodox or is Orthodox Chabad Hasidic? Where does that fit in? You know, they saw on TV. Most people don't know. And so that's why so many of these questions don't really play out in real life and, and, on, and on the front line. Thank God for Stissel. You know. Yes, yes. One of the things that, that, that stood out in the polling was is that the general question as far as do you identify with, uh, the, Jew, with, with the religion of, of Judaism, so to say, whereas there was 21% of Jews that say that they would identify uh, themselves as by the name a religious Jew, and 41% of people in America in general associate <clears throat> with their religion. And the question is asked, why is it so few when it comes to Jewish Americans that will identify and stand up and say they're a Jew, whereas in the Christian world, they'll stand up right away and say that's who they are. Are, are Jews less religious than those of the rest of society? And I, I would just like to first add my own comment to this, of, of a comment I heard from Rabbi Manus Friedman, this goes back some decades, where he heard a, uh, he said the best description that he's ever heard of what is a Jew, he said he actually heard from a Father Dubois. Why I remembered the Father's name, I don't know, but it always stayed, it stayed in my mind. Father Dubois said, a Jew is someone who is religious and doesn't know it. 
and there is an element of truth to it that for whatever reason, and, and the, Rabbi Brooke touched upon this before, and most of our panelists also made mention of this, is that we don't like identifying with that word religious. Christians jump up and they, they'll talk about how religious they are. You know, you go into a, a, any shul on Yom Kippur and everyone's fasting and praying and they're wearing crocs on their feet, right? And you ask them the question, are you, are you religious? And they'll say, no. <laughs> but you're in a shul. I know, it's Yom Kippur. You're fasting. Yes. Why? Because it's Yom Kippur, so you're religious. No, I'm not religious, right? If you go into any church and you'll ask anyone, are you Christian, they're going to say yes. You go into any mosque, are you Muslim, they're going to say yes. Jews have a hard time with this labeling of, of religious. And perhaps if anyone wants to add to that as to what the difference is between Americans and their religious association and Jews and their connection. I think you touched on it. You said earlier that, the, or one of our panelists said that when, to be Jewish means you have a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And so if someone asks you, are you Jewish? They say no. Then you ask them three seconds later, and we have this experience because we put up 450 mezuzahs on 450 homes in Montana. Now these people will, I think 449 will tell you they're not religious, and yet they want a mezuzah on their front door. No one made an appointment with them. You showed up at the door and said, hey, you know, we realize you don't have a kosher mezuzah on your front door. Would you like one? And the answer is yes. And they still don't identify as religious. And so I, I think that, again, I think this whole conversation is, is based on the fact that we think Jews want to identify. We have an uncomfortability, especially if you live in a place where there are not a lot of Jews, like you're outing yourself. If I say I'm Jewish, it's not just about the responsibility. It's also do I have to out myself to some random person on a phone, right? When they call you and ask you, are you Republican, Democrat, or Independent? Many people in Montana always give the wrong answer. They don't, they're, they're worried that it might be their next door neighbor is going to find <laughs> out the truth. So you don't know who this person is asking you the question. And so mezuzah for sure, because that's who I am identifying, reform, conservative, or, you know, and then they have orthodox people who say to you, um, is your minion in Bozeman, when you have a minion on Shabbos, are they Shomer Shabbos, do they observe Shabbos? I said, of course. They go, it means no one drives the shul? I'm like, you didn't ask me if they drive the shul, you asked me if they're Shomer Shabbos. Shabbos has many, many detailed observances. Some of the Shabbos observances they're doing, some of them I'm not sure about, so the, the labeling is not somewhere we go very well with. Um, I want to add something. So I think this conversation leads us to Chabad, um, and, and I want to say something about Chabad. I think that in, in the United States, we've been, like I had said before, we've been very conditioned, like we were talking about, that there are certain responsibilities or certain, as if, if you want to be this kind of Jew or that kind of Jew, these are all the boxes you have to check off. And like, if you check off those boxes, then you can call yourself whatever kind of brand you're talking about. So if you're a human that doesn't check off those boxes, you're gonna say, I'm not really, I'm not in the, I'm not in the story. But I think one of the things that's so amazing um, about like the fact that Chabad is all over the place is that the first thing you find out when you walk into a Chabad house is like you're a Jew and you're already in the club, right? You don't have to do anything. There's like no hazing or conditions of membership. In Montana, right? we do hazing. Oh, you do? Okay, so they're special in Montana, but okay. So you have to like ride a come, horse. Come you have to ride a you, you have to ride a horse first. Come out next week. We'll give you a crash. <laughs> but you know, you walk into a Chabad house, or you you meet you meet a, a, a you know a rabbi a, a shaliach somewhere, and it's like oh. You're in my family, right? Mm. You're already in my family. So I'll just say, like, my, in my family, we go to a lot of, um, like, rock concerts, like, you know, hippie, 
Grateful Dead and Fish kind of concerts. Okay, I, I did just out myself there, right? <laughs> so, so when my son goes, he's 23 years old now, when my son goes, he always brings his tefillin with him. And he, and it's like, you know, they're outside, there's a crowd, there's a big scene in the parking lot where everyone's like hanging out and like doing what, you know, music folks do. And he literally stands there and as the people walk by him, he says, are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? And he's, you know, he's a, he's a, an impressive guy and he's not wearing even like a rabbi's, he's just wearing jeans and a shirt and like one after another in that moment, these boys come up to him and they're like, yeah. And then he puts tefillin on them. And like probably most of them maybe put tefillin on once at their bar mitzvah, probably never put it on before. I am so sure that if you ask these people like, right. are you Jewish? How do you, how do you feel like, do you, do you believe in God? You right. know what? Everyone believes in God. They just don't all know that they believe in right. God. And, and when he puts these tefillin, these guys cry. They cry. They actually cry. They're so moved because they are Jewish and they just forgot. So I, I think that we just, it just really depends on like who we're talking about and what kind of experiences. And I mean, one second you could not identify as Jewish and then you could go to a fish show and put on tefillin and remember that you're Jewish. I think the main uh, problem is college. I have tenure, so I can say that. But, uh, uh, but, but it is that Jews, almost everywhere they went in, emancip in, in emancipated Europe and, and America, they wanted to join the elites wherever they went. And in America, the elites are in college-educated professions. Yeah. And it's, I'll just say, it's not hip to be religious in the elite cultures, centers, like the academy, uh, like uh, media, Hollywood. I, it's, in, it's just not where the typical successful person is, is religious. So I think when you talk about 41% of Americans say they're overall say they're religious, you know, that includes the rural areas. I, I, you, when you leave Atlanta, you, go, you enter Georgia. And, uh, uh, and you see there's just there are churches everywhere. It's very, I, it was amazing to me. We moved down here 27 years ago, actually 27 years and a week and a half. That's what a New Yorker says. Counting Spirit of Omer for how long you've been in Georgia. And after the first year, like we had never encountered, we, I grew up in Brooklyn, um, we lived in Manhattan and, and Riverdale. We had never seen a traffic jam in front of a church on a Sunday morning. <laughs> you know, if I saw one person walking their dog to get a New York Times, like that was already a, And here there were cops stationed in front of churches to direct traffic. So, I, uh, so my wife and I wrote uh, an op-ed uh, called From the Borscht Belt to the Bible Belt, Reflections of Former New Yorkers. And uh, we actually sent it into a Torah Masora uh, publication, but they refused to uh, publish it because it was too gracious to, to the Christians. Um, and the truth is, in a, like, I don't have to hide in a phone booth to Davin Mincha. I, I went to a lunch with a colleague um, uh, from the law school, 
not Jewish. And he said to me, like here, I'm trying to figure out how am I going to go wash or whatever. It's a kosher restaurant. <laughs> but, and, and he says, is, is, is it okay if I say grace before we start? Mm-hmm. He says, sure, I'm on my way to say hamotzi. You know, like a, uh, so religion is much more comfortable in certain parts of the country. Where Jews happen to congregate, I just think not, it's, not. it's not so. Yeah. I'd like to, to follow up with that because I've had the good fortune to live in Atlanta, <clears throat> in Oklahoma, Tennessee, Israel, grew up in Skokie. And I hear what you're all saying, and I'm going to tell you I I have a different perspective on what it's like to be with the religious people of America. And if you can believe it, their numbers are far worse than ours. So as they turn to us and are asking us, how do you become so successful? And in almost every meeting I have with every other people group, my answer is always the same. We're unique people who care about our children. Because we care about our children and we care about the other, that's what we do. And we just keep rolling and keep going and keep going. And their numbers are under 3% of affiliation. So some of what we're talking about in religion is really digging deeper into the complete collapse that's happening across our society of the roles. But again, I'm going to say that within Judaism, we have enough... And of course, I'm going to say the century of Israeliness mm-hmm. and the century of Israeliness that changes the equation to me measuring myself against what American Christians are doing or American Muslims or American Hindus and seeing a whole different relationship brought in globally. Because uh, I don't think it'll shock any of you that Fauda is the number one show in Saudi Arabia this week. Wow. Right? And, and, and Right, so we just, we're, we're, we're in these transformative times. And when transformation happens, I actually feel that the people at this retreat and the people who are involved with all the different mechanisms of this kind of uh, brilliant movement understand that there are many pathways in. And the ways in are really the people who are, as, as has been remarked here, welcoming. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the American landscape right now, there are very few places people are welcomed. And I think that's one of the secret sauces. And when we, if you did a survey, how many, in how many Jewish environments are you actually welcomed with open arms? I think we would see who's number one, and we would use that as a proof model, and we would build upon that proof model further. Thank you. Thank you all very much for that. Is there anything in that, if you've looked, delved into the Pew study that has a comment to say on the American synagogue? Where are they failing, perhaps, and how they perhaps need more focus on inspiration? And this is not just a question regarding Chabad centers, obviously, but all the temples and synagogues in America. Because Chabad's always going to keep growing and get, uh, expand and grow. And we've heard a lot of the reasons from our panelists as to why. Welcoming, accepting every Jew, no label. But you do hear numbers from other temples and you see the merging taking place from one temple to the next to the next, whereas membership is going down, not up. What has to change? Value proposition. You want to elaborate? I worked with many of these movements. As I said, I think I've reached every Jew at least once. And you have to give people something of value. And right now, and of course after COVID, uh, we can count empty buildings. 
-hmm. So that is not something valuable enough. And when, again, when we have the level of leadership, what are we teaching, what are we learning, who's bringing who together, there's a dynamic future ahead, it just looks different. And I'll say something now that I hope will be cut out of the video. <laughs> if you made your faith based on a pre-Israeli Judaism, let's say, and based on Episcopalian or Protestant values, then why are we wondering why the Jewish pews are empty? Like what? We have a vibrant other culture in Israel to tap into. We have a very vibrant American Jewish community to tap into. And like everything else in business, if you don't offer enough value, then merge, close, change, transform, grow, everything, but kind of stamp your feet and wonder why people don't like you. I think a, a very different take on what uh, was just said. Just because as a rabbi of a shul that gets people to come, I think there's two sides to it. The one side is obviously I love having a Shabbos morning shul and minion and all of that. And we have young people coming in Bozeman because the rabbi invited them to come help the minion and they're happy to come. Most of them don't read Hebrew, but they feel at home. They're wrapped in a talus. They're sitting in a spiritual haven. The rabbi does speak in English. They get an aliyah. They feel like they're part of the community, even if they don't necessarily know how to daven and pray in, in Hebrew. That being said, I think the biggest mistake in, in the question is, who said Yiddishkeit is about a shul? Who in the world made that thing up? During COVID, everyone was busy making themselves crazy on fire escapes with, minion, with minions. And they called me from some newspaper in New York, and they said, what do you think about the, you know, for lack of a better term, the obsession. I'm like, I don't know. I checked all 613 mitzvahs in the Torah, and none of them said, thou shall have a minion. That doesn't mean a minion isn't important. It is. It's a vital part of Jewish community, but it's not the most important thing. And if we, as rabbis, as community leaders, um, don't learn to recognize that the growth of Judaism isn't dependent on how many people fill your pews, but how many people come to your Torah classes, how many people are doing mitzvahs, how many homes have mezuzahs, how many women are using the mikvah, then we're going to continue to fail at the synagogue. If they use the mikvah and have mezuzahs, there's a better chance they'll come to shul. If their Yiddishkeit starts at the shul, the chance of anything else ever happening is very slim because after three hours of services, they're running away. I think they should sell the buildings and use all the money for scholarships for, for children to go to Jewish day schools. I don't have such a good solution. Uh, but I'm not selling my shul. <laughs> no, the empty, the empty buildings. The empty find, buildings. I also find it interesting that uh, most Chabad uh, centers are not called shuls. We are the shul of Bozeman. And there's I, I the think, shul of Bell Harbor, I, I, I and then there's the shul of Bozeman, the two biggest Jewish Chabad communities houses. in America. I, I, They're called Chabad exactly. houses I think, for a I think, reason. I think it's, a, I think yeah. it's very specific. Um, right now, at least in America, there is a wave of anti-institutionalism. There's just, call it an allergy, call it an antipathy, but institutions are against kind of the individualization that's been going on in America, the sense of I want to have freedom to do as I wish and institutions lock me in. You have to have policies, you have to have rules, you have to have protocols, you have to have uh, money, right? This way I can come in as I want uh, and uh, I can leave as I want. I'm not, I'm not committed. Institutions, right? a great, great sociologist at Princeton of religion uh, named Robert Wuthnow, I'll be speaking about this a little bit on Sunday. That was not a plug. Yeah. It's okay to um, but he spoke about that in the mid-20th century, there was a spirituality of dwelling. Mm. 
of, of habitation, institutions, hierarchies, buildings. You know, you feel safe, confident. It was the Cold War. But over the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it drifted towards a spirituality of seeking, mm. of journeying, of being in flux. And he said both kinds of spirituality have always existed, but conditions, social and, and, and political and economic conditions, privilege one kind of spirituality over another. And right now, we are in an anti-dwelling, pro-seeking kind of spirituality. So going into this massive building where you have to know the people, you have to know the code on the door, or you know you have to pay your dues, and somebody's going to tell you that, and you have to give them your and email. Don't forget tickets for Rosh Hashanah. Exactly. Tickets. No, that, so institutions turn people off right now, and that's true. Of uh, Jack Wertheimer wrote a very important book. It won the Jewish Book Award um, called "The New American Judaism." You should really see how inventive conservative and reform synagogues have to be just to survive. But it's still, they just, so many people just don't yeah. want to walk into those institutions. Right, and to prove your point, many people have asked me over the last 18 months, so how did Chabad do during COVID? And I said, it's very hard for me to say this in public, but we did better than any year prior to COVID. And they look at me like, what are you talking about? I'm like, listen, the first few weeks of COVID, we had to move quickly. It was Pesach coming up in three weeks. And we had to figure out in three weeks how we're bringing Pesach to every Jew in Montana. So normally I wait for the 70 or 80 people that come to our Seder. Right? And then I give out 200 boxes of matzah. Now I had to give out 1,000 boxes of matzah. I had to bring Pesach and wine and grape juice. And that started Pesach. And the next, you know, every Yantif. We reached more Jews in COVID than any year prior to all over the state while the, while the Reform and Conservative synagogues, well, we don't have conservative, the Reform synagogues in Montana were closed. And when, they cl when they're closed, there's nothing else to do. We were, the doors of the shul were closed, but our activities grew and blossomed. And so it goes back to your point. Synagogues, the dwelling is not where it's at. And thus the value proposition of innovation mm -hmm. within our people, the transformation that we're gonna go through and continue to be mighty, strong, smaller, larger, but mighty and strong for sure. Reminds me of a, of a parable I heard of a, a, a poor Jew that had a Puritz. A Puritz was a, a, a landowner and the, the Nebuch, the Jew, had this little hut that he would have to go pay every month some cupcakes to, to the Puritz he would have to scrape together the pennies to, to make his rent payment. And he makes his way, brings the, his, his rent for the month, and he comes into the Puritz's house. And this Puritz, this landlord, is sitting by a table, and his wife serves him this delicious-looking mushroom omelet. I mean, it had everything in it, mushrooms and vegetables, and, every, and it smelled delicious. And the Puritz is eating it, ah. This poor Jew is so jealous. It's so, it's so wrong. Why does he get to have that and I don't? Comes into his house on his way home and he says to his wife, Zlata, in this house, I'm the Puritz. And I want a mushroom omelet. Zlata is a very sweet woman. My dear husband, nothing would make me happier than to make you a mushroom omelet. There's one problem. We don't have any mushrooms. Nor do you have any money for me to buy any mushrooms. So he says, so substitute. Find something else, you're a good cook. Okay. My dear husband, another problem. We have no eggs. <laughs> substitute. Okay. To make a good mushroom omelet, you need some flour as well. We have no flour. Substitute. 
We have no vegetables. Substitute. We have no salt and pepper. Substitute. In this house, I'm the porridge, and I want a mushroom omelet. Okay. Zlata goes to work. She makes a mushroom omelet out of whatever she can find. And she serves it to her husband. He takes a spoon of it. Ah, I'm the porridge. He puts it in his mouth, and he spits it out. And he says, I don't understand why the porridge likes mushroom omelets. <laughs> Sometimes, if we keep substituting and substituting and substituting and taking out the values, and we focus on the cathedrals, and we don't focus on the holiness, and we substitute the eggs and the mushrooms, and we keep substituting because we think that's what it's called for in our time, we end up feeding a mushroom omelet that doesn't taste like anything of a mushroom omelet. And then they spit it out. And then we have Pew studies trying to figure out why so many are leaving or not attending or not accepting the label instead of simply focusing, what was the recipe? Let's look back at the recipe. And perhaps if we cook a mushroom omelet with all the ingredients, maybe they'll enjoy it. Maybe they'll like it. It's not so far-fetched to say that American Jewelry is spitting out the mushroom omelet that's made with all substitute ingredients and saying, it doesn't taste good. And we need to start feeding them mushroom omelets that taste a lot better. They should learn from the chefs over here. Let's move on. I, I just want to... Uh, something yeah. a little bit more encouraging. Um, the, uh, in terms of the Pew study, over 90% of the respondents said they're proud to be Jewish. That's, that's There's awesome. something to work with there. Yeah. In other words, when you have the Catholics who have lapsed, they don't say they're proud to be Catholic, even if they haven't gone to church. There's something about, I don't know, you, you called it the secret sauce? Right? So there's something, and sociologists have never encountered this, that such declining religiosity as defined narrowly in a Protestant way, and yet a sense of pride that's through the roof. A guy walked over, the first, second month I lived in Bozeman, he walked over to me in the health food store. A guy I don't know, I'm, I'm new to town. He says, Shalom Aleichem, my name is Bob Jaffe and I'm an atheist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine if I walked over and said, hi, my name is Chaim Brook no, and I'm a super duper Orthodox Jew. I mean, it, it was so Identify odd. right away, I'm an atheist, I, I'm an I didn't have a chance to say hello. Exactly. I was like, okay, yeah. let's have coffee. Yeah. I love atheists, I mean, it was, but, but yeah. I agree with you, the Jewish pride, yeah. And of course is what to work with. We see it every day. Yeah. Briss's Jewish funerals, you name the event, the most secular of Jews, the, most, the, the Jews that identify most as secular, when push comes to shove, I, I don't know, sometimes I think they think I'm a doctor because every time they're in the ER, they call me. I mean, I have nothing to do for them when they're in the ER. They need a good doctor, not a rabbi. But they're calling the rabbi. Why? Why are you calling a rabbi after 70 years of not stepping foot into a shul? They can't help themselves. Just and make I sure to tell an atheist that you don't believe them. <laughs> no, and I just wanted to say, I think that's another reason um, why so many, there are like Jews of no religion, Jews of, what do they call themselves? Yeah. Jews of no religion are so attracted to Chabad because it's like the only place where they can get the actual like sweet authenticity in a, but they're welcome in. So it's, it's not, it's not, who just said something about just like, they'd rather have a little bit that's real than you know a whole lot that's really watered down, and I think I think that's a big part of 
the, I mean, I think that's a, that's a lot of work. Chabad has a lot to do, but I think that's it. They, they love the authenticity. I, I came home a few weeks ago from visiting a couple of plants up in northwest Montana for kosher supervision. I walk, I go to the, get the you know, every Chabad rabbi lives at the mailbox. They could say whatever they want. They can't wait to see if the check came in the mail. I come there, there's an envelope from Fidelity, you know, from the, the funds. And there's a very large check that we're not used to getting in Montana. <laughs> and from a guy whose name I never heard of, but he has an address in Bozeman. So I go on White Pages, I find the phone number, I call, and a woman picks up the phone. Oh, that, said, what's White Pages? <laughs> yes, it's a thing we still use in Montana, and maps. You um, still have a Thomas guy? <laughs> and so I call the lady, the, the woman answers the phone, and she says, oh, I bet it was my husband, call him, here's his cell number. So I call the guy, and the phone call goes like this. He, he has a name that sounds as non-Jewish as, as possible. And he says, my name is so-and-so, I grew up Orthodox. I've been out here for quite some time. If it helps you, Rabbi, I'm, an, I'm a grandson of Rabbi Melech of Lezhensk. Mm. That's the words he used, and I almost passed out, because he didn't say Rabbi Lamai, he didn't, he didn't stutter. He said Melech of Lezhensk, like he was in, in Poland four weeks ago at, at his resting place, and I'm also a descendant of Rashi. <laughs> okay, this is going really well. And, and God has been very good to me, and I heard you're doing good work in the community, so I decided to send you something, and his something was a really nice something. So I found an article a few days later on Chabad.org about Rabbi Lechavlazhensky, and I sent it to him, he felt like a million bucks. But the point is, here's a guy, doesn't go to shul, doesn't involve with Yiddish guy. He told me, he identified, this is what he said on the phone, my wife and children aren't Jewish. And yet, somehow he read about me, heard about me, and wants to be part of it. Why does he want to be part of it? I mean, I'm glad, don't get me wrong, that, that initial donation is going to cost him a lot, a lot of money in the long run. He has no, he has no idea. <laughs> But, but it's, an incredible, it's an incredible thing. Identifies Rebelech of Lezhen's grandson. I don't even have that record. I'm not his grandson. Yeah, on, you touched on, on, on intermarriage just uh, slightly there. And it's a, it's a depressing subject, but at the same time, it does need to be addressed. Intermarriage rates are going up in this country. What can we do about it? So I've spent a lot of my time in this space. And I'm going to come back and say what I said before, so it's easy to remember. Number one, the Jewish grandparent who pays for preschool education for either the non-Jewish mother or father is an automatic special gift of love. And it puts young families into the milieu of a Jewish environment. Number two, to, to be welcoming is half the story. In other words, to have to fight at home over what you do is different than accepting and welcoming and figuring out as you go along. And I'm sorry to say that, that many of us in our communities have chosen a lot of red lines, <clears throat> whether they're policy lines, political lines, religious lines. These lines, as, as the professor has pointed out, what they do in this generation is drive people away from wanting to tangle with it. They're just not going to tangle with it. And when I was living in Oklahoma, uh, a friend of mine, her son married a non-Jewish woman, I said, just pay for preschool. Get to tell her it's a gift. That you're a wonderful woman, send the kid to the Jewish, to the Chabad preschool. And sure enough, the woman converted years later. It took a process, but what was it? It was out of love. And it was out of demonstrating what it is to be inside of a Jewish family. And for many people in this vast country of ours who are part of many different cultures, 
Trust me when I tell you they really don't know very many Jewish people. It's not the anti-Semitism that drives them as much as they honestly have never spoken to one or asked the kind of questions they want to ask. But the one thing they all know and say, and they say it to me constantly, is we went on the internet and read how to welcome a Jewish person is with a hug. Should we hug you? Mm. And I think it's a beautiful thing that that's what they read and that's what they chose to talk about, about a Jewish person. So as we're looking at numbers change, and as we're looking at a dynamic change in community, I'll go back to saying value proposition. Let's make sure we're offering something that people want. And we know we have it because we have the secret sauce. Right. I think that most Chabad houses, I can only speak as a Chabad shlich, I can't speak for other shuls, we don't really have a way to combat intermarriage. It's a fact. In Montana, for example, we have about a 95, we have like the intermarriage rate of, of Finland, about a 95% intermarriage wow. rate. And so to combat it means you're going to spend your whole life alienating people just by, just by even talking about it. The only real solution for intermarriage is Chabad on campus. So you spoke yeah. about preschools. The reality is that unless they're continuing from preschool to elementary school to middle school to high school in a Jewish environment, which is very, very rare, then obviously they'll have a better understanding. But in college, we see that what's going on on campus, and I think the Wall Street Journal pointed it out in yeah. last week's article, that is the hope for Judaism as far as intermarriage is related. The other good hope is that there's a 60% divorce rate in America, so you really don't have to do much. <laughs> the Chabad rabbi has to see, just sit back quiet. Don't say anything. It's all going to happen on its own. All right. Well, Cut I, that I, from the video as well, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wanted to say, and I, um, maybe Michael could get back this up with some statistics, but um, Jewish day school is the best thing that a family can do to combat the possibility or the now probability that their children will ultimately marry out. And um, you know, there are just so many, there are, there, if, you, if you think about how many Jewish children there are and how many Jewish preschools there are, and then you know, once they're out of preschool, and there's so many in the amazing Chabad preschools across the country, then they just leave, then they're gone, they're gone, and then Chabad has to sort of like sweep them up on campus, and they're like, you know, 14 years of education that they were, you know, in my opinion, basically robbed of, because how could you raise, like raising a fish out of water to raise a Jewish child without knowledge of what it means to be a Jew in the world, and if you really want to, I don't know what you can do to combat uh, anti-Semitism today other than like Chabad on campus type of situations. Um, but get those kids in full day Jewish elementary schools like from the time they are, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade and the likelihood of them marrying out is like it plummets. Um, I don't know the exact statistics, but I know that I know that Avichai did research that shows that that is a fact. Go ahead, Robert. I'll just I mean, the statistics are actually very interesting because uh, Len Sachs from Brandeis in the Cohen Center also did a longitudinal study of birthright followed by Massa. If you go on the 10-day trip followed by a semester or a year in Israel, you also have uh, north of, I think, 70-something percent uh, in marriage rate. So that's very, very uh, promising. I do want to, I don't want to end on a, on a negative note, but part of what I said earlier is one of the reasons that um, I think intermarriage rates are stable at a very high level, uh, at, even outside of Montana. Um, and that is, if you view religion um, or spirituality in very personal, interior, privatized ways, then 
why can't I marry somebody with a different hobby? In other words, if religion is so much of your life, then you, ha- you really need to marry somebody like-minded. But if I like sports and my, other, and my spouse likes music, those are hobbies. We can live together. You know, there's still 85 to 95% of our time that we share other than when we do our respective hobbies. So I think if you want to combat intermarriage, you have to help people see that religion can fulfill much more of their lives than isolated moments or, or occasions. And it's, a, it's an uphill battle. I'm not saying not to do it, but realize that it's a much bigger phenomenon. A study out of Boston from their CJP uh, about 10 years ago now showed that the ch- 30, over 35% of the children of intermarriage identified as Jewish. Now, in 1991, it was less than 10%. Because they said, okay, I, I see it as a choice. My mother's Jewish, my father's not. I'll pick whichever one I like. And actually, more, you know, a large number are picking Judaism, but it's seen as a personal choice. And that's a, that's a real cultural mindset that is much harder to change. I, I just wanted to add one other tiny thing to this, is that, you know, um, let's say like in my parents' generation, when they were getting married in like people in the 50s and the 60s and then even the 70s, it wasn't so easy for a Jew to marry a non-Jew because non-Jews did not want to marry Jews. It was not acceptable in the non-Jewish world to marry a Jew. And I think that, that, you know, as we have sort of grown more open in not good ways, but open to the idea of marrying non-Jews. At the same time, non-Jews have grown much more open to marrying Jews. And I think we're seeing the result of that like perfect storm. I think that there's one plus to the division going on in America now politically in the last 10, 15 years is that if you, if you asked a super liberal college student, would you marry a, a red state conservative? They'd say, are you crazy? So hold on. So for marriage, there are certain principles you have. So they're not ready to marry everybody. So it's an opportunity to quietly mention to them that, by the way, it's probably not healthy to either marry someone that's outside of your faith because it can get complicated. So we thank can you, use every crazy situation to our benefit of teaching Yiddishkeit. Thank you. I want, I want to thank the coordinators of this uh, panel because they selected four wonderful, wonderful speakers here. Uh, we all learned a lot from all of you. Thank you all so much, and thank you for joining us. Please visit MyJLI.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and TorahCafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.